On this week's Devils in the Details, a quick word about the loss to Bayern Munich, what we could have reasonably expected, and whether it was frustrating. And then the Burnley match, points back on the board, but it wasn't super smooth, even against relegation-threatened opposition, as United had to battle through a double-digit amount of first-team injuries. How did they fare under the circumstances? Okay, seven matches into the season, and we've already seen injuries to Juan Bissaka, Evans, Maguire, Lissandro, Varane, Malasia, Shaw, Regulon, Amrabat, Mount, Menu, Ahmad, and Hoyland. That's not even to mention the situation at right wing. At this point, is it about surviving over thriving for United? That depends on how you conceptualize where we are right now. In the next week, two weeks... I think it's more about surviving because there's so many absences. But once you get a few of those players back, things need to start to click more tactically and in terms of the performances, I think. In particular, who do you think you're most looking forward to seeing back in the side? Looking forward to is maybe not the right word, but I think that the players that are going to make the biggest difference are Mount, Martinez, and Amrabat. I I think those are the... I don't want to spoil too much from what we're going to talk about today, but... What I was most struck by in these last two matches was the inability to progress centrally or really progress at all. And I think that is ultimately down to the absence of players who who facilitate that. Yeah, let's explain that a little bit more. And I think it was probably more evident in the Burnley match than the Bayern Munich match. But for chronology's sake, I'm going to start with the Bayern match. This is a really weird game. Um, There was the penalty giveaway by Eriksen. There was the Onana Howler, then there were the two set-piece goals from Casemiro. Um, just an incredibly difficult match to analyze. I think both sides had long stretches of poor play from uh, from a pressing standpoint and even from an in-possession standpoint. And ultimately, I do think United were the vastly inferior side, but I wasn't particularly surprised by that. I would expect that even if United had most of their players fit. Um, what do you think about this match? Is there anything that you really want to go into detail about? I don't know that I agree that if United were fully fit, I would expect them to be the vastly inferior side here. I, I don't think I agree. Maybe not that. vastly, but I, I do think I do think Bayern Munich are a more established side. And I know that they've recently hired Tuchel, but they've been one of the top sides in Europe under high-pressing coaches for two or three seasons now at least. So, Yeah, when you, when you, obviously when you go away to a side like Bayern, you don't expect to win no matter how good you are. However, if we were, I'm just, this is, this is a meaningless point because we're not fully fit, but if we were fully fit, I would expect us to be able to go there and, and compete. Uh, I definitely think that's, that's what you expect. But regardless, it's not really relevant. Um, your question was, what would you like to, to talk about from this match? I'm not sure there's anything really particularly specific that I would want to talk about. The press obviously didn't work. Uh, a, a huge part of that, I thought the, the most common theme, especially early on, was how easily they were bypassing down the wings. Uh, really often, it was this 
ball that they would slide from Upamakano down to Limer, who was the right back, and he was pushing up really high, and it would just cut Rashford out of the play. And, and sort of, you saw this also against Burnley, it would prevent us from being able to turn them back around, which really is what the press is predicated on when you're not in a, a fully man-to-man situation. It's about making them sort of uselessly, making your opponent sort of uselessly recycle possession. And when you allow them to cut out your wingers rather than um, sort of go around them, which I, I realize it's not clear verbiage, uh, when you allow them to bypass your wingers as opposed to play around them, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, like when you get the ball so far ahead of the wingers that it's not reasonable for them to recover in time to make uh, an actionable impact on the opposition's possession. What that means is that now you have an opposition fullback who's in a position where they can play out of pressure and into midfield um, more effectively than they could if the winger was in a position to intervene. Yeah. I think that's what you're referring to. Yep, so that is what I'm referring to. So that was a big issue against Bayern. It was also a big issue against Burnley. To a certain extent, the press allows for this to happen. It's something you can build in. Um, if you push up your fullbacks, if the opposition push up their full, fullbacks really high, you become a little more you become a little bit more vulnerable to this. However, Rashford and McTominay have done a really poor job of executing in these situations, and I think that has more to do with it than the actual press itself, because we've seen this press work even when opposition push fullbacks high um, before, uh, and ultimately what that comes down to is the winger's ability to stay with the fullback uh, and and turn play around. And then also your interior midfielder, uh, in this instance, Erickson, should basically prevent prevent anyone from coming free and unmarked, which should basically make put your fullback in a, in a position of, uh, of indecision. And, and when I say your fullback, I mean Limer in this instance, the opposition's right back. Um, and obviously that didn't happen. Erickson and Regilon to a certain extent, the Regilon situation is more difficult um, sort of failed to prevent that access to um, the other interior players. And, and you saw that again against Burnley uh, with McTominay really struggling with this, more so than Erickson did even. Um, and yeah, so I think I think that kind of tells the story of the match, at least early on before United conceded the opener. Um, and obviously the, the final scoreline is 4-3, but from that point on, United were never in the match for more than very short periods. They obviously scored a, a quick goal at the beginning of the first half, but then immediately concede the 3-1, and then they score the 3-2 and immediately concede the 4-2. So once Onana obviously makes that really big shot-stopping error, United are never back in this match. Yeah, I think that as far as the tactics goes, covers enough of the Bayern match for us to get on to Burnley. I think one more thing I'll ask here is we finally got to see a start from Facundo Palistri. What did you think of Palistri's performance in this match? Do you think it's something that's going to warrant more time in the first team? No. Uh, it was it was sort of exactly what I expected from him, which was not very much. Uh, I don't think he's physically at the level to beat Champions League level defenders. And uh, Davies is obviously a special case because he's so physically advanced, even relative to your, you know, your average Champions League slash Premier League fullback. But I don't see Polistri really giving anyone huge problems. And I also think 
in general, his, his, his ability to create threat with his passing and, and off-ball movement is lacking. And on top of that, he's not a particularly good out-of-possession player. In fact, I'd say he's, he's a poor out-of-possession player. So that cocktail there just sort of makes him a... Personally, I, I, I'll be honest, I don't think he's at the level for United. But he, he, could, he could change my mind on that. This is his first start this season. So uh, early days, but I, I was not impressed. Yeah, you pretty much nailed it. I think it's... He has some interesting dribbling at points, but never with the acceleration to consistently beat his man from the start of matches. I think that's why he's looked a little bit brighter in sub cameos. And then, even then, the final ball is not there. I don't really think he gets goal-scoring chances, so he's not really going to get output, and then he's not really contributing defensively. I think basically that informs uh, you going to Bruno at right wing in the Bur- in the Burnley match. So let's talk about that. Burnley, United won this match, finally, but they weren't particularly dominant. Um, and I think there were a number of reasons for that. And I think if, I think by discussing that, I think we'll get to the heart of how much of this was due to United's system and how much of it was due to the absences in personnel. Um, and so I guess a good place to start, in my opinion, would be what I thought was the biggest issue, which was uh, building from the back, particularly from Onana into... Uh, the central defenders facing forward and then having to play out of the back here. United started Lindelof and Evans in this match. And I mean, I think in spite of Evans's incredible pass for the winner in this match, I don't really think he was effective at progressing the ball throughout the 90 minutes. What do you think? Yeah, so I think this is the right place to start. Overwhelmingly, I felt that United were really lacking from what they got from their center backs in possession. Um, obviously, to a certain extent, that's down to the midfield personnel, because I don't think this midfield personnel is particularly adept at progressing between the lines. And, and when you don't trust somebody to receive and turn on the ball, you're not going to play passes uh, between the lines. But yeah, I, I thought Evans r- really mirrored Lindelof in this way, where he he looked comfortable enough when he had the ball, but he wasn't doing much with the ball. And the only thing he ever really did was play these these speculative long balls over the top when he wasn't under pressure. Um, which obviously, you can call them speculative, but then when one results in an assist, it makes all the difference. But I, I, I don't imagine this is going to be... Um, I, 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 don't, I don't see this being like a projectable thing that's going to happen frequently over 38 matches... Um, and otherwise, I didn't think he offered much in possession. Um, the, the other thing I would add is that sort of pass, specifically from the situation where it came from, is more a symptom. Obviously, the, the technicality involved is absurd. The pass and the finish, absurd. But what it really is a symptom of is Burnley not closing him down and their defensive line not being particularly low. Um, and we've talked about this before in this podcast Probably the worst possible defensive configuration you can have in top flight football nowadays, in particular in the Premier League, is uh, a defensive line that is not low, which is to say, you know, a mid or high block, and low pressure at the front. And that's exactly what Burnley presented you with in that situation, and you exploit it. But United's players are always going to exploit that. Um, That was true even under Solskjaer. So, um... With that in mind, yeah, complete complete agreement there. Uh, anything else to add? 
No, not really. Not before we go further forward. I think a point that you highlighted that allows you to move to the next line of players is the fact that the midfield here was really struggling to do anything progressive, in particular Casemiro and McTominay. Casemiro was a little further from the buildup than usual, with McTominay as the deepest midfielder, and as much as I understood why McTominay was chosen given the absences, I think we saw all of the reasons why this is a problem, uh, both in buildup and out of possession. Is there anything you want to add here? Do you want to talk about this in particular? Casemiro, McTominay, and Bruno, who was playing right wing here but was also in central areas pretty often, none of those players offer and effectively receive and maintain possession in, in, in between the lines. Now, Burnley were pretty aggressive with how they were blocking off these early passes. I really do think they were trying to force United to play over the top. Um, and on a different day, I, I think United could have been a lot more effective playing over the top. But uh, you got... <laughs> it's really sometimes comical when you see Casemiro, but in particular McTominay, try to receive these passes because they're really they're just desperate to not give the ball up rather than doing what you know, what top six club midfielders should be doing with the ball when they receive them in these situations, which is trying to do something proactive. Turn around a man, play a a pass forward. Um, But really what you see Casemiro and McTominay do is they kill the ball uh, in in one spot and then they try to shield it and then just hope to pass it back to someone, Uh, which is just unacceptably poor. It's just, you, you you can't have both of your deepest midfielders doing that. I really, I don't even think you can have one of your, your deepest midfielders doing that. Yeah, and so the balance of this was basically just whenever the ball went centrally, it went back to Onana or wide to Dalo or Regulon, eventually. And so you had a lot of stray long balls from Onana that I don't really think were his fault. You had a lot of Regulon and Dalo getting into difficult situations under pressure. I think for the most part, they did all right with them. Um, Dalo in particular had a couple of really good line-breaking passes, but... That's not enough to break a press consistently. You can't have a goalkeeper and two fullbacks and expect to be able to play through pressure. And I think the issues are pretty clearly personnel-based. And so the conclusion would be that this is not particularly something I'm worried about tactically when you get some of the first-choice midfielders into the side. Um, I think the question is how high of a level the first-choice midfielders will be able to do this at in this system. But right now it's really hard to tell because I think regardless of the system, you have four players in the center here who are going to struggle to play through this Burnley side. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I think really you you saw that more underlined when United had the ball with Onana than you did when United had the ball at the halfway line. Because when United had the ball at the halfway line, I I do genuinely believe that the right way to approach beating this Burnley side was to play over the top more than anything else. Because they were pretty aggressive. They were pushing five guys up against United's back five which is effective in preventing you from making that first level of penetration and playing into midfield. But what it does is, but exact, well, forget it once you do, what it does is if you play a ball, even a speculative ball over the top, you're, you're sacrificing any numerical advantage at the back, which basically means you're, you're just counting on your defenders to win duels against United's front five. And I think United's front five... A, with Hoyland are just much more, they're in a position to win these duels more. And in in, in any instance where you, you, once you put attackers 
at a numerical advantage or even numerically even situations where you're four on four or five on five, the attackers to a certain extent have the advantage, which is, it's a dangerous game to play. And I don't know that it's fair to say that Burnley paid for it because it really, Bruno, what Bruno did was a, just a fantastic piece of execution. But I also think there were other moments in this match where if United's front five had executed better, they could have created more chances. I'm getting a little tired of saying that, but I, I do think it's the reality. So so in, in this instance, what, what, when we're talking about this, I, I think more about first phase buildup than I do about second phase buildup. Transitioning more to maybe the attacking components of this match, um, the other player in the midfield that we haven't really spoken about yet was Hannibal Medjbri. And honestly, I thought this was a better cameo than uh, I would have previously expected from him, uh, given some of the football I've watched of him during his loan spell and what we know about his skill set. I thought he was often quite good at evading pressure, winning fouls, uh, getting United out of difficult situations. I thought largely he made good decisions in possession, which a lot of United's forward-thinking players, I think, don't do. And in particular, in the last half hour or 20 minutes of the match, Medjbri was getting United out of difficult situations consistently. However, I think we both discussed that we didn't really think he was showing any signs of being particularly effective in the final third. Do you think that means he could be a player who could step in in one of those deeper roles, perhaps, uh, as the next few matches still present some injury issues uh, in order to help United get the ball out of buildup and into the other half? Or do you think that might be too big of a risk to play in that deep? I mean, uh, frankly, I don't, I don't see much risk in it because the alternative is using McTominay again, which I'll... I'll, I'll... I'm, I, I mean, you could play Ericsson. You could play, you could play Ericsson and Casemiro. I... I, I don't see why you wouldn't try Hannibal in this situation because what you've seen from him is really high defensive application. He seems to, in the first, his first cameo he made, I thought he was very poor in the press in terms of his understanding of the system. But then he made this, this second cameo in a similar role, but obviously somewhat similar. So, somewhat similar. In, in, in his first cameo against Brighton, it was in the diamond. So dif- different. In this one, 4 2 3 1. He's the most advanced midfielder. Really good in this appearance. Um, I was really impressed with his execution of the press. That, to me, and and combined with what you mentioned about his ability to retain the ball late in the match, was the reason we held on to this win. Means I, I don't really see risk in, play, in even trying him at, at eight. Um, because I don't think he could possibly play worse than McTominay played in this match. Uh, that might sound harsh, but I really don't think... Even with this injury crisis being what it is, McTominay should be playing. He was absolutely horrid in this Burnley match. Like, I don't have a good thing to say about him. Um, and so if you can move Hanel back uh, and plug someone in higher up the pitch, uh, whether that be Mount if he's back or, I don't know, any ideas? I, I, th- I think that's probably the only... You could play Erickson higher up. I actually would be interested to see that. Um playing Ericsson sort of as that 10 and then have Bruno on the right or any other combination. But I, I do think Hannibal definitely earned some more playing time, at least until you, you have, you have other players coming back. I, I do think he did some dangerous things. I think he holds onto the ball too long, which resulted in some dangerous situations in our box. I also think he wasn't great in the final third, but I think that really just speaks to who he is as a player, which is he can add value between the boxes, he's not going to add much value in the box, uh, whether off, whether in the attacking box or the defensive box. 
Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum who plays number 10 if you bring Medjby deeper. I think we've seen matches where Erickson has kind of lacked dynamism in that role, um, given his athleticism at this stage. Yes, but I also think it's a, it's, it's a position where you can hide someone better out of possession than that, that deeper eight role. I think that's, that. I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you could just bring Bruno back into 10. The question is then, you're shifting the problem to right wing. So, yeah. I mean, it it really depends. Um, but I mean, okay, let's put it this way. If you're going to play the same midfield you did in this match, I would put Medjbri deep and then either McTominay or Bruno wide um, instead of having Casemiro and McTominay as the two deepest midfielders. What happens when you bring back Ericsson, I'm not sure, because I think Casemiro and Ericsson have at this point, shown that they are somewhat effective at getting the ball from United side of the pitch to the opposition side in matches where they're not playing a particularly high press. But I do think they've had issues out of possession. So maybe that's another argument to play Medjibri that he'll add more defensively. I don't know. This season will rise and fall on, on how many minutes you can get out of Amrabat, Mainu, and Mount. But... I mean, Medjbri has definitely put Hannibal has definitely put himself in this conversation as as somebody who can gain who can win minutes given the performances you've seen from Casemiro. Casemiro, who was better against Burnley, I I will admit, uh, Casemiro, Eriksson, and McTominay. Yeah, I agree with that. And for what it's worth, I I think regardless, what we're saying is that Hannibal's performance gives you options here, as opposed to presenting a conclusive uh, a conclusive point. I I wouldn't I don't think it would be so bad if he had to play more minutes at number ten. Um, his performance was not great, but or not great in the attack, but overall, I think fine and did what he did what did what was expected of him. And Tanhag actually commented as such at the end of the match. Yeah, in, in general, I agree. In general, I agree. I, I do worry also using him higher up the pitch, whether you're sacrificing execution levels to a certain extent in the final third. It depends on what the alternative is, right? Like at this stage, we're really looking at what Garnacho. Martial? Is Martial even fit? Yeah, he is. He is. I don't think either of those players are coming into number 10 and and offering significantly more output than Hannibal at this stage. Yeah, pro- possibly true. Um, There's I, also Donny van de Beek, I guess, who has been registered. And I would, he's not registered I in the Champions League. I wouldn't be opposed League. to seeing him at some point. He's not registered in the Champions League. He's registered in the Premier League now and, the, uh, and in the Cups. So, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing him at some point if that's deemed something that's possible. But at this point, I can't even tell. I would rather play Ericsson higher up. I do still ultimately think, as much as I, I think Ericsson is a huge liability out of possession and, and that, that would not be untrue at 10, he still is a 10. Uh, and I do think he is better in terms of his ability to contribute in the final third than Medjury would be. So yeah, th- th- those are my, so- my thoughts on that. I think I still would prefer Ericsson there, at least in matches like this against Burnley. But I mean, ultimate, ultimately, we're talking about this in the, the ultra short term, because if you have to rely on an 11 like you rolled out against Burnley, United are not going anywhere this season. It doesn't matter what you do tactically, because ultimately, whatever Hannibal is, I don't think he is good enough to start for a Champions League side. Uh, he, he, he could very well secure himself a, a, a solid squad role. I think that's very possible still, but I don't think he's suddenly going to be able to elevate the side in any way and so when you have to play a player like him and then Johnny Evans who was fine in this match but I think 
how good he was was overblown. McTominay, like, yeah, those three on their own, I think you've already created a problem. Casemiro, who's been really spotty this season and still doesn't contribute much in possession, uh, or really, I should say, is a, is a negative when United are trying to build in possession. Um, and then Lindelof, who I don't think is really a, the quality of a top six starter. I do think he's good enough to be in the squad, but uh, these guys are playing more minutes than they should be playing, than, than you plan for them to play. And, and you're never going to get... You're never, you're never going to progress as a team when suddenly your first 11 is your second 11. Okay, uh, to round off this subject... I think I'll say this. United play Crystal Palace on Tuesday. What would be your midfield three for that match if A, Regulon is fine, but Amrabat's not ready to start yet? Would it be Casemiro, Medjbri, Eriksen? Yes. Yes. Well, wait, wait. So in, in midweek is the League Cup, though, right? Yeah. Frankly, given where the, the, the team is right now in terms of the, the eleven. I think I'm resting anyone who's even close to fitness issues. I think Regulon you do not use in this in this <laughs> in midweek. I think you rest Martinez. I think anyone who That's is fair. ailing you do not play here. It's it is not worth it. It is the League Cup. It's the first round. It's not like you're punting a, a chance to win a tro- trophy. Your odds are still not great yet. You need to rest. Like this team needs to get healthy. To whatever extent I agree, I struggle to think about who's going to come in for Regulon, who is completely fit. I mean, you, I for, I get the sense Amrabat's not ready. You could play, you could play Dallow at left back and and bring in play and you play McTominay at right, right back. Like the, the, you could get creative if you're gonna get weird. Like like if Regulon is hurt completely, you're gonna have to get weird anyway. So I'm not like that daunted by the idea. You get, run out a kid, run out Forsen, run out. Gore somewhere. Um, these guys were on the bench for the Champions League match last week. Um, I think a better question is what you what do you do next weekend against Palace? Um, because for me, that's we need these points in the league, uh, and we need to stabilize things in the league. the The other side of this, though, is if you lose in the League Cup, do you is are you we're so worried about squad morale at this point? Um, which, yeah, that's what I was beginning to think about as yeah. well. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think if you're gonna lose in the League Cup to play a couple of youth players, I don't think that'll hurt squad morale too much. But I think if you're gonna go, oh, McTominay's gonna play at right back, yeah. and then we're gonna bring in, you know, another senior player to cover for him in midfield, and then a bunch of players are out of position. They all have bad games. I wonder what kind of effect that has on the team. Yeah, so I think what you do. Is, is that, is you just run out of a bunch of kids then, uh, if, if that's the concern. What he's going to do, he's going to run out of full force 11. Like, it's going to be full strength. I, I don't object to that at this stage. I, I see the argument. I think if you if you look at the fact that he rested Erickson, I think that shows me that he has an eye on starting him on Tuesday. Do you think that was resting Erickson, or do you think it was him feeling that his out-of-possession performance was so unacceptable against Bayern that he couldn't use him again? It is both. I think he looked at I think he looked at the two matches and he went away Burnley Turf Moor going to play the players who can cover ground and then Crystal Palace against Hogson's Palace in the League Cup I think I can play Ericsson in that one. The point is less that I think McTominay adds a lot that Ericsson can't bring and more that he's spelling Ericsson for the matches where he thinks he can be the most effective I think. And I think that's why you're likely to see him start at least one of the next two Crystal Palace games. I mean Palace don't really do the 
as far as I know, they're not doing as much of the like high pressing building out of the back stuff as they were about a year and a half ago. I I haven't watched them in a while, so I don't know what to expect here. But on the one hand, these last two league performances have been poor. On the other hand, if you look at the players that were used in these matches, it's self-explanatory why that happened. I don't want to be like a super oversimplified football conversation podcast, but if you look at the squads that United have been putting out, they have beaten the teams where they put out the better starting eleven. And they have lost to the teams where they put out the worst starting eleven, in my view. Yeah, yeah, I think I probably agree with that. And and I I'd honestly say on the the only performance that I think was absolutely unacceptable from the losses was the Bayern one. Uh, sorry, was the, the Brighton. Brighton one. Yeah, given given yeah, because I think the Brighton squad was a stronger squad. It was a tactical decision that was made that led to a lot of the issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I think you could have mitigated a lot of what happened with better tactics um, and and a similar approach to the Arsenal game, even if you didn't have the personnel explicitly to a do A similar it. approach to the Arsenal game, or you just sit in. This is something... That too. Like, <laughs> if you watched West Ham play Brighton maybe a month ago now, they just completely sat in on Brighton, and Brighton had no ideas. They have no idea what to do when they don't have the pitch stretch. Um, and then you play on the counter, and we're good on the counter, and we still had the personnel to be good on the counter in that match. We had Hoyland... We had Rashford, we had Bruno. That's all you need. That's that's what I would have done in retrospect. Also, think Regulon is very good on the counter. In fairness, as well. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but maybe you don't commit numbers like that. West Ham didn't really commit numbers; they just executed. Which obviously, there, there's some there's some space for luck. Yeah, luck exactly. <laughs> like the execution levels West Ham hit on the counter in that match were absurd. But yeah, anyway, that's that's pie in the sky. It's not really meaningful. No, that's okay. I think we could use a little bit of a tangent today. It's, it's our first, I think, on podcast during football conversation tangent in a couple weeks. So Yeah, yeah, true. We haven't talked about other 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 sides. I, I think, but you're right. I don't think we want to oversimplify this because there are still tactical issues. And I don't, I don't think, there's, there's two sides to this. There's, there's the one side, which is if United had started this season with the players available that they currently have available as their squad, we would have predicted them to finish like eighth. Would we have not? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. So, like, real personnel constraints that mean this—you have to get healthy. You have to get healthy to 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 fairly assess what's going on here tactically. There's the one side. There's the other side that, even when completely healthy, which we have not been yet, there are tactical question marks that because we don't have a fully healthy squad, get aggravated uh, and exacerbated. And you see that play out. And, and, and really, I think that that's, what you, that's, where you, that's where you land with the Burnley match, with the Bayern match. The Brighton match being a different thing that I think is a bigger tactical failing. But, uh, I mean, you lose by one away to Bayern, you win by one away to Burnley. In terms of results, it's basically what you'd expect in terms of performances it's basically what you'd expect given where the squad is at um but i i'm still kind of on red alert because i'm i'm it's so hard it's so hard to be in a good like how do you assess this team right because these injuries are ridiculous there's questions to be asked of why there's so many injuries um i don't think it's entirely luck but even if you even if you pretend that it that it were it's so hard to excuse performances that are this poor when you were supposed to be improving. You know, uh, it, it, this is just like where to land on this is difficult for me. 
Yeah, I think that's why I'm going to hold off on making a definitive conclusion. And I think that's maybe the conclusion from this ma- from this episode is I think there are very clear personnel limitations going on. And I think it's difficult to ascertain the extent to which there are tactical limitations going on that are really hurting this team from getting uh, results because because of the personnel limitations that make it difficult to really figure out what this team is looking to do when they are fully fit. Um, and so I think, I think we really just need to see a little bit more fitness before we go, oh, the press is fundamentally flawed or the buildup is fundamentally flawed. And, you know, United are conceding tons of chances through midfield from cutbacks, um, systematically. And so for that reason, I mean, I think we're just, we're hitting a point of limitation where I'm going to say, I'm going to give it two or three more months, get more evidence of what's actually going on. And then maybe by Christmas time, we'll be looking at this and United are 12th and we're like, okay, this is a big issue. Or maybe they'll be, you know, fifth or sixth and players are starting to get fit and results are starting to come in. Performance is more important than results, I think, really. And performance is starting to come in and we go, okay, this is roughly what we expected given the injury crisis, regardless of some of the difficult performances we've seen over this stretch. Um, And so maybe we're actually just fine given where we are in this rebuild. I, I, I still think ultimately where I land is not enough information. I'm still inclined to believe that. I mean, I, I still believe when this squad is completely healthy, they can execute these tactics at a high enough level to comfortably get into top four. I still believe that, but you're you're obviously... Do you even see this squad completely healthy this season? Completely is a strong word. I think I see the squad fit enough that you can expect them to be close to top four. Like, if they miss top four by two points and the teams that got top four are playing as well as they are now. Like, okay. Right now, I would say there are five teams that are playing really, really good football in the Premier League. Um, Man City, Arsenal, Spurs, Liverpool, and Brighton. And I think if you find that four or five of those teams come the end of the season are still playing very good football. They're around the 70 points mark and United are also within reach of them. Then you go, okay, this is football. It happens. Um, As long as the performances have been constructive and the fitness situation is what we expect it's going to be. But Once you get a certain amount of players back, whether it's fully fit or not, you have to be expecting a certain level of performance from this team. Um, This team, like I said a couple weeks ago, this team has good players. It's not like we're bereft of talent, you know? Even even the team yesterday had Rashford, Hoyland, Bruno, Onana. I thought Dalo and Regulon are showing a lot of promise. I I, I don't even think you need to be that careful with your words there. Dalo has been very good. Dalo has been very good. He has, yeah. So I I think you're... Looking at a team that, even with all these injuries, still has, you know, six or seven good players. I think two years ago, you were looking at a team that, honestly, I was looking at starting 11s and going, who is actually someone I can expect to perform well? And had no idea, because most of the good players were injury-ridden, and most of the players who were playing were not at the level. And so, yeah, I think I, I think at some point, you still have to produce some level of high performances. But how high is the difficult part to be able to tell at this stage of the season? Yeah, I, I think you have to expect this team to get healthy. Like, for the entire second half of the season, they have to be definitively one of the four best sides in the league. 
Um, and if that's not true, then I'm I'm beginning to ask questions. Pending who's fit, I can agree. If they're if they're healthy, yeah. If they're not healthy, then 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 if they're not healthy, you say, why is the squad so shallow? Because the squad is incredibly shallow. Um, anyway, no details. This is the segment where we allow you to ask anything you want, but with one caveat. The questions cannot be about football. This week's question comes from Rahul Vedia. Rahul, please correct me if I didn't pronounce that correctly. But he says top three desserts. Okay. Apple pie. Specifically my grandmother's apple pie, which is it's like a it's a Dutch apple pie, so it's uh the 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 dough, the the what is it? What's the word? The crust is shortcake. Um rather than oh, like, okay. it's literally to die for. It's amazing. Okay, what else? I, I can go for basically anything chocolate. I like chocolate cake, but I I can't say that's top three. That's so lazy. Have you had kunefa? Yes, I have. Yeah. It's like a I don't I don't I don't know if it's appropriate to call it an Egyptian dessert. It's a it's a Middle Eastern dessert that I have encountered through Egyptian people. Uh that's like I don't even know how to describe it's very it. Good. It's basically like um Simple syrup poured over, uh, like a flaky pastry kind of. That's a good way of describing it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's just like super sweet and delicious. Um, it's usually hot. The pastry. Yeah. Uh, and then a third. This is very hard for me. This is very very hard. I'm not like a huge gelato ice cream guy. I, I like it, but like I, I don't go crazy for it um i might just ice cream was gonna be in my three for sure so yeah (laughs) i might just go for like a a chocolate chip cookie or something i i I do just love a a good chocolate chip cookie a good a well-made cookie is an art like i took up baking during the pandemic and honestly the one thing that i could not bake consistently well was cookies Mm. it's so difficult to get the right i can make some some mean chocolate chip cookies some 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 very very good ones. Uh, so I might go with that. I, I feel like I have to have something more interesting than that though, because like I do see the stuff that comes to mind. I'm like, oh, dulce de leche is delicious. Like cannolis, I love. But like I can't say that those are things where I'm like, oh, that's my thing. Apple pie is really it. Apple pie. My first one will be apple strudel like the german kind with uh with vanilla sauce um when i was five my family took me to austria and according to stories it is the main thing i ate for two weeks <laughs> in austria as a five-year-old um i only wanted to go to different cafes and order apple strudel with vanilla sauce and so whenever i get the chance to get it in canada i go straight for it I'll pick a go and dessert. Um, my dad makes a really good one. Um, for any goans who might be listening, it's called bibinka, or sometimes we call it bibik. And essentially what it is, is it's a coconut and egg yolk based. Um, I think a cake would be a wrong way to describe it, but it's like, it's like a cake, but it's not spongy. It's more smooth and, uh, and the layers you 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 cook it in layers so it actually takes hours to make where you you lay one layer down and cook it in the oven uh or under a grill 
and then you put the second layer over it in liquid and then cook that over it all the way to seven or eight layers usually. And then you can actually peel the layers apart one by one and eat them. Um, and it's, it is so, so good. Um, my dad has spent trying to perfect his process of making one. He usually makes it like once or twice a year and he'll take the day off work to spend five hours of his afternoon putting together this dessert. And so that's it's crazy. naturally become a childhood favorite for me. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. That's cool. And then I actually said I was going to say ice cream, but I'm torn for the third between like a cookie dough ice cream or a pistachio gelato or like a carrot cake. I love good Ooh, carrot, carrot cake. cake. That's actually a really good pick. I really like carrot cake. Yeah. I really like carrot cake with like walnuts or um or with coconut. When when someone can bake a good carrot cake, like it is really 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 good. So I might have to pick that over the ice creams, which are probably like the dessert you'd be most likely to see me eat on a regular basis, but doesn't have maybe the specialty to be in a in a top. Yeah, three. no, it's, it's a good answer though. It's a good answer. I'm I'm definitely gonna come up with something after we come off and be like, how did I not mention that? It's not like I don't eat dessert. Okay, that was a good no details question. You got one more? Or? Um, we could do one more. I'm going to look at some of the other ones here. Have you seen Oppenheimer yet? One person said thoughts on Oppenheimer. I still haven't seen it. I know. I know. Oh, man. I watched um, I watched Inception for the first time this week. Uh, what did you think? And it, it was yeah, really great. Really I was... I had, like... Um, I oversee first-year students on campus. So, I mean, I doubt any of them are listening to this. But there were, like, 20 first-year students and then, like, a couple of us uh residence assistants on campus in my room here watching inception and like at the end i think there was a solid like 30 seconds where everyone was just sitting staring with wide eyes at the screen none um, of you had seen so it i think it was well enjoyed uh i think some had I guess first years would have been a like lot six hadn't. years old when that movie came out which is crazy i think it's 2010 so yeah they're they're mostly born 2004 2005 yeah that's wild um yeah, but it was it was absolutely fantastic, and it's made me want to go marathon all the Nolan movies. I, I rewatched um, The Prestige last week with a couple friends. I really like The Prestige as well. It's the kind of film though where once you've seen it once and you know what the giveaway is, it's it's not as good as Inception. Like Inception, I can rewatch, but The Prestige, it's like yeah, it's just kind of fun because you're like, oh, I'm in on the joke. I know what's gonna happen here. Uh, I also just think Christian Bale is so good, yeah, which is Bale why insane. The Prestige is one of my favorites. Yeah. I think that was the first Christopher Nolan movie I watched, actually. Now I want to go watch all of them, but I honestly think Oppenheimer might be my favorite of the five I've I, seen. I, need, I really need to go see it. I keep on meaning to go see it. I actually, I was going to go to the movies this past week and go see it because it's still in theaters here, and I think it comes out of theaters next week, so I have to go see it. But I, I, was, I went to go to the movies, and I was going to go see Oppenheimer. I was trying to convince one of my friends who hadn't seen it to go see it, and they were like, I don't know if I'm up for three hours on a weeknight at the movies a lot of people have a lot of people have said that and i felt the same way going in and then going out i was like oh man it's over yeah no i'm sure i'll feel that way that for me that was not a a barrier but then we wound up seeing um a haunting in venice which is like uh it's kenneth branagh's like third agatha christie adaptation personally i'm i I like murder mysteries so I, i i went for it enjoyed it uh they're super corny but Good entertainment value for, like, a murder mystery. Wasn't a huge fan of Death on the Nile, which was the last one that he had done before this, but this one this one was better. 
It's funny you say that because I actually watched Glass Onion last night. Yeah, what did you think? I I had seen it before, okay. and I and I love it. It's great, but um, I was I was hanging out with a bunch of friends who hadn't seen it, so we watched Glass Onion together, and yeah, it's just such a fun movie, and I think they did so well to make it topical without making it annoying. Mm. Uh, I think I preferred Knives Out like a, though the original. I think I did as well. Mostly because I think the murder mystery in this one was less... Mysterious. Intriguing, yeah. yeah. But they're both really good for anyone who hasn't seen them. Like, I think they're really fun movies. And I think my brother was telling... My brother was telling me he just saw Janelle Monet in concert on Thursday. And I was like, oh, this is a perfect time to watch Glass Onion because she owns it the entire movie. So... Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. I think that's all I got on movies for this week. Have you seen Memento? I have to. I know Memento, Interstellar, and the Dark Knight trilogy are the are the ones oh, I got. That's right. You I haven't really seen the, get on. the Dark Knight trilogy. That's wild. That is wild. <laughs> Memento. A lot of people, I think, who I guess were early on Nolan's work, love it. I don't love it personally. I saw it, and I was expecting it to be like on the level of, like the, the level of like wow factor of like the prestige, and, and for me, it wasn't. Still a good film, but like, I don't know. Doesn't hold up the same way. Dark Knight is fantastic. The, the specifically the Dark Knight, the the second one in the trilogy. So I'll have to make it a marathon and 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 watch them at some point. Yeah, probably this semester. I'm gonna I'm gonna look to do it. You should. I think that works for no details. Anything else you want to add before we uh, call it a week? Oh yeah, I guess we'll, all I'll say is until the injuries clear up, it's gonna be really hard to to make a call on this this side. It's really frustrating because, you know, we had all these analyses early on in the season where we were like, we do think this is going to click. Let's just wait. But now we've seen even more injuries. And you're, I think those, those positives fade in the rear view when you see an injured side go out and put together worse performances. And so that's where I'm at now with the team. So really just waiting to get those impact players back, getting Mount back, getting Amrabat back, Martinez, Shaw. Pretty much agree. And as we head into Crystal Palace squared, I'm kind of expecting the themes next week to be really similar to the ones this week. So hopefully they give us something new and positive to talk about. But other than that, everybody have a great week and hopefully we'll be back with some good news next week. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.